Amen. Good morning. All right, so uh, it is an intimate Sunday with all the births and sickness and travel. So uh, stay with me. I'm going to need you this morning. Uh, you're going to need to stay awake this morning. We're co- going to cover a lot of ground um, because the Bible has so much to say about wealth and could spend weeks, but we're going to spend one. So I'm going to try to keep emphasis on the preaching hour this morning. Uh, so we're in part two. And when, when um, I speak to Christians about wealth, when we as Christians think about wealth, the first thing I want you to know, we should know, is to have an eternal perspective. That's why when we looked at wealth, we began with the teaching of Jesus last week. So if you were not here last week, if you didn't hear last week's sermon, we are building on that. This is not uh, divorced from what we covered last week. We must first and foremost know that whatever we have here on this earth, it is temporary. And Jesus uh, directs us to store up treasures in heaven. This is where our final riches are as, as believers. But Proverbs has a lot to say about temporary resources as well. We are to store treasures on earth, or excuse me, treasures in heaven, but we are given treasures on earth as well. So last week was the kind of spiritual dimension. This week is much more practical, dealing with the kind of day-to-day dimension, the, the, the wealth that we have here and now, uh, because as John Stott put it, we live between two worlds. And if you haven't heard this concept, Christians are dual citizens. Primarily, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Our citizenship is in the heavenly Jerusalem, and ultimately in the new heavens and new earth. But immediately, meaning now, we are citizens here. We live, we breathe, we work, we pay taxes, we vote. We have citizenship responsibilities in both. Our primary is in the kingdom of God. But our immediate citizenship is here. And so when we're given earthly treasure, God gives us earthly possessions and and Uh, money and all these things so that we can uh, fulfill his command to be fruitful and multiply. And we want to provide for our families and we want to enjoy God's creation. So before we get into Proverbs, a few things to keep in mind. Remember from last week, we've been dealing with the two paths in Proverbs, the path to life, the path to death. The the, the one lady wisdom, the, the other lady folly. Rich and poor, poverty and wealth is not a life or death issue. There are rich and poor on both paths. So whether you're rich or poor does not determine whether you are on the righteous or the wicked path. However, how you use and view your wealth is an indicator of what path you're on. That's what we're getting at this morning. Your wealth doesn't determine where you are, but your use of that wealth, your view of it, your love of it, is an indicator on what path you're on. And so Let's be honest, this is a touchy subject. Uh, And this is going to challenge a lot of our hearts. Because biblically, riches are not evil. But the love of riches is. And so this tension is inside each one of us. We all need money. We want money for for our necessities. But we don't want to love it and serve it. And so... So that's the first thing. Next thing is many of the texts we're going to deal with this morning are principles or uh, premises. Essentially, they are general rules 
They're not absolutes. There, there will be some that are commands, that are precepts, that are promises, things God will do if we do this. And so Proverbs requires a lot of discernment. If you read every verse in Proverbs like it's a promise, like it's a command, then you're going to be a little confused because it can seem to be contradictory. So a lot of what we're going to do this morning is social commentary. Proverbs describes a lot of common situations and things that are, that are common to all. So we're going to make observations on those, but we're going to camp out in a few that are really applicable to us. And since we're talking about wealth and we've only got an hour, um, we will not be able to be exhaustive. We're going to deal with what Proverbs has to say, but we're also going to rely heavily on James. If you're familiar, James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. James is so practical um, and deals with a lot of the same ideas. The tongue, which Proverbs deals with a lot, wisdom. But I didn't realize how much James deals with wealth until I'm looking at all the parallels. So I'm using quite a few parallels from James. There's even more. So um, it's helpful to read James kind of in light of the gospel, how this has worked out in the church. Uh, and so if you want the theme of James. The theme of James is our faith. Um, how did I put this? Our, our faith lived out in our works. James assumes that you're a Christian, you have faith in Christ, but how does that play out in the life of the local church? What does this look like if a bunch of people of faith get together? How should their lives uh, be, be worked out and lived out? So, and there's gonna be, here's the other thing. There's a lot of references on the screen. Um, stay in Proverbs. We're going to go through a lot of references. It's difficult to narrow it down. Uh, and if you're in the back, there are Bibles on the side. So those are all my premises. I want to look at two verses from James and then two verses from Ecclesiastes. So James, first chapter, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Same theme in Proverbs. If you can get anything, get wisdom. Because that will lead you to the Lord. And, and everything else will fall into place. But here's what's also important. When we look at wealth, God gives generously to all who ask. Here's the other thing. When we hold our money too tightly, it tells us a lot about how we view our Lord. Our God is generous. Again, chapter 1, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits first of his creatures. So here's our, our tendency. We either love money or we feel guilty about money. What James is saying to, to a, a body who seems to have a lot of division over money, your father is generous. He gives good gifts. He gives lavishly. Look to him. Find your comfort in, in him. Know how great and generous he is. And, and then we'll put all the rest of this stuff in perspective. Um, Solomon is really good in wisdom for many things, uh, but Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Solomon kind of weighs the uh, two here. This is the tension that exists between and every one of us. Sol uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. He talks about the love of money, um, but then also uh, in enjoying wealth. So you don't, you don't love it, but we can enjoy it. 
Verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Don't love it. That's the root of all evil. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Amen to that. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not help him sleep. Don't put too much stock in your money. Look what he says later, though. Verse 18, both these are true. Here's the tension. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun and the few days of life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in toil, this is a gift from God. Both these are true. Don't love money. Don't hold on to it tightly. But if you have it, praise God. He's given it to you. He's given you your, your, your gifts. And if you work hard, you can enjoy these things and praise him for it. Verse 20, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. This is the, the literary and theological center of the book. If you are consumed with praising the Lord, whether you have much or little, your days are going to fly by because the Lord has put joy in your heart. That's what I want this morning. We're going to give some practical advice, but at the end of the day, we praise the Lord in abundance and in lack, and he puts joy in our heart. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless our time this morning as we open your word, that your spirit would illumine our minds and our hearts, that Hey, we would not just be hearers, but doers also. And this morning, there's going to be a lot of self-examination going on. Because we have this love-hate relationship with our stuff. We don't want to love it, but we do. We don't need it, but we do. Lord, help us to be people who hold these things open-handed. Who praises you for every good gift. Who is gracious and generous who are thankful and content. Lord, this is so difficult. We will live the rest of our lives trying to figure out how to be good stewards of what you've given us. Give your people wisdom. Give us discretion. Give us discernment because we have this gospel perspective that in Christ we have all things, that we are the heirs of eternal riches, Everything we have here is passing away. But there is eternal riches in him that will never fade, that are imperishable. May our eyes and our hope be on our kingdom and our Savior, our citizenship in heaven. And may we be good stewards and citizens here on earth until you return or call us home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so open up to Proverbs. Remember, keep your... Bible in Proverbs, and um, the cross-references are going to be on the screen. Proverbs 16.8. We left off at chapter 15 last week, so 16.8. There are many iterations of this, this principle. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Uh, we need this reminder. Here's the principle here. It is always better to have little in righteousness than any of the alternatives. Whatever the alternative is, great things over here apart from righteousness, great this or that, it is always better to have a little bit of wealth 
in righteousness. But then the other part of this is going to be a theme that will come up a lot in Proverbs and a lot this morning. Then great revenues with injustice. Injustice is a theme today and a consistent theme in the Bible because God hates it. Injustice says, I care more about me than I do you. I will get my way at your expense. And every one of us are faced with decisions that can benefit us and hurt someone else. And how do we approach those? And so we see injustice around us, and it is out of our control. We are not responsible for what others in the world do, but there is no place for injustice within the church. It is unacceptable, and it is against the gospel. So at the very beginning, why do Christians care about justice? Why do Christians care about things being right? Because our Father is just. Our Father hates falsehood. He hates lying. He loves truth. He loves unity. And we have been united through the blood of his Son. The gospel tells us that there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, rich nor poor. These external distinctions no longer matter. We are told because Christ humbled himself, Philippians 2, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, because Christ humbled himself. He went from king of all creation to walking around with dust between his toes. How could we not humble ourselves? How could we think of ourselves more highly than someone else because of what our Savior has done for us? How could we oppress people and push people down? It should not happen in the church, and it happens far too often in the church. We are not the police of the world, but we are absolutely the police of the body of Christ. We are not to judge outsiders, but we are to judge within the body. And so this for us is a great kind of uh, introductory principle. Wealth is a great thing. Praise the Lord if you have it. Praise the Lord if you don't. But what we have is not used for an excuse to uh, push someone else down for our sake. We should be champions of justice because our God is a just God. But even if we can't see justice in this world, vengeance is his. And he will one day right every wrong. Amen. All right. Uh, I have here 2 Corinthians 8 9. I love how the gospel is seen in terms of rich and poor here. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is the gospel in monetary terms. He is rich beyond belief. He became poor. You know what it means to be poor? To become human. And by his humanity, lived perfectly. Brought to the cross, brought to nothing, to humiliation and shame and death, dying to our sin and rising into our place, we are rich beyond belief. He became poor so that we might become rich. If we ever are confused with how we are to view our finances, don't forget this concept. If anyone could find comfort in wealth, it was the king of all creation, yet humbled himself as a servant to serve us. All right, next one, 1811. 
This is a companion to 10.15. Last week we covered chapter 10, verse 15, which says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of a poor man is their ruin. Again, these two things seem like they're contrary, but they work together well. Look at verse 11. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his mind or in his imagination. What's going on here? Wealth is a guard. Let's, let's be honest. Wealth is going to save you from a lot of perceived difficulties. But it's just a facade. Wealth will save you from being hungry, but will it, will it save you from pain? Will it save you from loneliness? Will it save you from sin? Will it save you from death? Will it save you from foolishness? Will it save you from judgment? So it's a high wall for sure, but only in his imagination. Because if you think your wealth is going to protect you, You've got another thing coming because there are all kinds of things that can get in, under, and over that, that wall that money cannot buy. And our society is so focused on classism, and I think you know, we're often brought into that. Classism says this class is, should be um, propped up or pushed down in one way or another. We're tended to think, well, the rich people have it easier. Maybe when it comes to paying bills, but not much else. And many times harder, we'll, we'll see that later on. Because stuff isn't satisfaction. Um, here's what Solomon says. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 12. Great comparison here. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. Solomon's drawing the, the same connection in a different way. Your, your wealth is like a high tower. It's kind of like wisdom. But the advantage of wisdom... Advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Your money may protect you for a time, but it won't protect your life. Here's the advantage of wisdom. Get wisdom because in wisdom is life. And as we discussed, true wisdom is in the fear of the Lord, which leads you to Christ. All right, next, chapter 19, verse 6. If you're here for the first time, here's how we're handling Proverbs because there's no way to do this in a logical order. We're just going chronologically. We're working through the verses that deal with these uh, and I had to trim some even from what's in your notes. Chapter 19, verse 6. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to him who gives gifts. So what do you think? Is this a principle or is this a precept? So this is not a command. One of the things that's helpful uh, in our hermeneutics or in interpreting Scripture is we have to decide what is descriptive text or what is prescriptive text, meaning what is describing a general reality in what is prescribing what we must do. This obviously is a description. But I think many people read the scriptures as if everything is a command. This is not a command. It's an observation. It's not saying get wealth so that you can have more friends. Many seek the favor of a generous man. This is just generally true. People who give a lot of stuff away and give gifts, they have a lot of friends. You know, So if you want friends, give stuff away. Uh, and then you see who your friends really are when the gifts run out. Yeah, that's kind of the idea. Solomon is just, is just commenting on things that he sees as he looks out from the palace and he, and, he, um, and he observes the kingdom of man. All right, moving on to the next one. Like I said, some of these are just going to be social commentary. 19 verse 17. Um, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Now, this is a little different. Descriptive or prescriptive? This is... This is promise language. God is ensuring this, and he's staking his own name on it. This one is prescriptive. 
Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he, the Lord, will repay him for his deed. Proverbs speaks much to generosity. Does not think highly of stinginess, especially to those who need help. What does it mean to lend to the Lord? Think about it. When you lend something to someone, you're making a calculated risk in their mind, like, I may never see that money again. I may never see that, that book again. If you lend to the Lord, you think it will be returned. This is how sure this is a promise. And so when we care for those who are in need, we are saying, all right, Lord, I am entrusting this to you. This is yours. As Spurgeon said last week, we put our money in the best bank when we give to the Lord. And we trust him to have a return. And the, the, the New Testament is full of countless examples of believers being generous. And this begins with the household of faith. How often is Paul supply, needs supplied by believers? How, how often are offerings being taken up? But James deals with this in a, in a helpful way. Uh, so James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. A lot of people like to put James and Paul at odds. Because Paul says we're justified by faith. James says, faith without works is dead. James is just looking at after we are justified. This is how you know that you are people of faith, how you treat your stuff. Chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Are you really saved if, it's not, if there's no evidence of it? If a brother or sister, and this is not universal brother or sister, James is dealing with errors within the church. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you say, says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, what hypocrites would we be? I've got all these extra clothes and you've got none. I am feasting and you're starving. This is the problem in Corinth. What kind of faith is that? that sees a brother, someone who is bought with the blood of Christ, a sister, someone who is co-heirs with the king of kings, and say, I hope, to, I hope it works out for you. I don't know, you know, let me know if you're still hungry next week. It says, go in peace and be warmed without giving them the things needed for the body. This is not indulging uh, people's luxuries, the church provides for the needs of the saints. No one should ever go without clothes or without food. If you ever get to that point, please ask. Don't be ashamed. We would love to help you. That is what the body's for. And he says, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is showing what path you're really on. You may say that you that you claim the name of Christ, but how is this lived out in the way you view your, your stuff? Do you care more about your extra pair of fill-in-the-blank than you do your brother or sister who has none? All right, let's move on. Chapter 20, verse 14 in Proverbs. Verse 14. Bad, bad, I love this one, says the buyer, but when he goes away, then he boasts. What is he talking about? Again, prescriptive or descriptive? Descriptive. This is describing every uh, Craigslist garage sale tactic, right? Um, this is bad. It's scratched. It's broken. Uh, you know, the wheel's missing. I know you wanted a dollar for it, but will you take 50 cents? 
You ever seen these people on, on Saturday morning? Like, they will spend an hour trying to get an extra buck out of something. Like, I'll give you the dollar if you just shut up. Um, that's, that's what I'm thinking. So, um, this is uh, one of those things where someone either plays something down or hypes something up, and then they go around bragging because they took advantage of someone else. Here's the lesson here. If someone gives you a strong pitch one way or the other, don't listen. If anyone has to oversell you something, I already know it's not worth having. Because if it's worth having, you won't have to sell me that hard. And if you're trying to knock me down, it's going to make that much of a difference for you. You need it more than I do. So don't get caught up in high-pressure sales pitches. That's just a freebie piece of advice from Proverbs. All right, um, let's see, how far are we in? Let's go to chapter 22, verse 1. This is, this is an important theme throughout all of Scripture. We've dealt with this before, but, but name. Your name is your reputation. Your, everything is staked on your name. In those days, your name was your credit score. If you had a good name, you could borrow, you could you could return, uh, people trusted you because you had a track record. And in an honor and shame culture, a name is everything. That's why the writer of Proverbs says, a good name is to be chosen rather than riches. And favor is better than silver and gold. And so, oh, I skipped over one. We'll go back to that. Um, sorry, there's, there's a lot here in my notes. So the idea here, never Choose a quick buck over your reputation. So that sets and mean a lot for us. How do people view us? When someone says they're going to do something, when so-and-so borrows something, they're going to return it, can I trust them? This is even more so for a Christian because whose name we bear. And so this should bring weight to when the, when the scriptures say that Jesus was given the name that was above every name. His reputation is above every reputation. And he is the only name under which heaven and which man can be saved. Everything is put on his name. And as Christians, we bear his name. So will we seek silver or gold or quick wealth? in exchange for our good name? Will we cut corners or defraud people forgetting that we're a Christian for a quick book? How often have we fudged the numbers or just slightly exaggerated or downplayed the truth so that we could get an edge? What does that say about the name we bear? If we are in Christ, we bear the name that is above every name. And what is more important than our own reputation is his. What does it say about Christ when his followers are so stingy and so conniving that they can't be trusted? And sadly, this is the reputation of the church in many people's minds. Many people have been swindled and taken advantage of by money-grubbing churches, by greedy, false teachers who take advantage of people, and they defame their name but we should be angry when the name of Christ is defamed for someone else's profit. All right, so I skipped 2120. I want to go back to that. 2120. Here's another great practical proverb. 
precious treasure and oil are in the wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. What is this saying? It's a saying that a wise man is disciplined and doesn't spend all he has at once. He knows how to use it and enjoy it, but use it sparingly and use it with discretion. But a foolish man, he devours it. The fool in Proverbs is driven by his appetites. Give me all I can, and, and I, I want it all now. And in that culture, oil was wealth. We're talking about olive oil. This is everything. This is, this is cooking. This is, this is medicine. This is hair gel. This is everything. And if you've got a lot of it, you are wealthy. And you can, you, can, you can cook, you can flavor things for a long time. But if you use it up, a lot of areas of your life are going to be affected. Many fools treat money like the sluggard treats food. We dealt with this a couple weeks ago. They dig their hand in the cookie jar and eat it all at once and then wonder why there's none left when they're hungry. How many people treat money like this? How many fools get money and it's burning a hole in, the, in their pocket? This verse inspired the phrase, a fool and his money are soon parted. James speaks to this as well. James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Here's a good examination for ourselves. How do your prayers sound? Do your prayers sound like you're writing a Christmas list to Santa or you're talking to your heavenly father? You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. How many of our prayer requests, how many of our desires are driven by our own passions? How much do we want to spend on things we want? What are the things that, that, that consume our mind? I wish I could have this. But how many times, brothers and sisters, we say, you know what? I'm going to seek his kingdom and his righteousness first. And the thing that I thought I wanted, that was in the back of my mind that I forgot about, he gave me anyway. This happens so often in my life. And so often I forget, man, I could really use this. Or I really want this. When I put it aside and say, no, Lord, I'm going to put my affections on you, he gives it to me anyway. This is, a good, this is a good father who wants you to have good things, but he wants you to have him first and, have, and obey him first. All right, let's move on. Chapter 22, verse 7. Here's another one that just kind of describes the way the world works. The rich rules over the poor. All right, the ruling class is almost always richer than the ones they rule over. It's just kind of how it goes. But here, this, brothers and sisters, this second line, this is a real issue for us. This is a precept. This is a promise. The borrower is slave to the lender. Um, this is a dire problem today. We've got a lot of stuff, but we don't own much. How many people live week to week, month to month, just to satisfy debts? How is it that a borrower is slave to a lender? Let's think about what this slave-master dynamic that they're familiar with that we're not. What is a slave? A slave is someone who works to satisfy someone else. All of their work goes to benefit someone else. When you live on borrowed money, all of your work is going to pay and benefit someone else. People pay their whole lives, or people live their whole lives, 
living in debt. And in last week, a wise man gives inheritance to his children and his children's children. How many people live their entire lives in debt and have nothing to pass on? Because they were slave to their own desires, as James said. This is why the Lord directed Israel, Deuteronomy 28, 28, 12. Look how these two ideas are connected. The Lord will promise, open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give you the rain to your land in its season and to bless you uh, and to bless all the works of your hands. Here's the promise. I'm good. I'm great. I'm generous. I will provide for you. I promise. I will not let the righteous go hungry. And with it, I'm going to make you rich beyond every other nation. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Because he knew that would make them dependent on other nations. And it would compromise them, as Israel was many times compromised. Paul says something similar in Romans 13, 8. Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. If you owe someone something, pay it back. If you have a debt, get out of it as soon as possible. Our structure is a little bit different now. I mean, we we have more financial institutions. The principle is still the same. We don't want to be overburdened with, with, with debt. Our focus should be on obedience and loving one another, not accumulating more stuff. Don't let you owing someone else or avoiding them because you still owe them something get in the way of your relationship with them. Love is more important than all the things you can amass. All right, chapter 22, verse 26. This is going to take it a step further. This is dealing with the concept of surety. Um, In the scriptures, surety is making a pledge of your things, usually on behalf of someone else. And we dealt with this a lot in chapter 6. So, uh, chapter 6, 1 through 5, 11, through 15, 11, 15, and 17, 18. This is dealt with a lot because this is a problem. So again, we're dealing with an agrarian culture. Most people don't have bank accounts. They don't have credit cards. What they have is household items. So here's the, uh, the situation. Don't get in debt for yourself. Even worse, don't get in debt for someone else. Why? Because if someone can't afford something, they come to you, will you co-sign for me? Will you place a sure pledge for me? What do I have to pledge? Well, I've got my bed and I've got my couch. Okay, we'll take that. And so I know no one you would ever co-sign for, no one you would ever make an agreement for, they would never default on you. But let's just say they did. And then you lose your house. You lose your bed. You lose your, your, your animals. Jephthah is one of these guys in the Old Testament who makes a foolish pledge. Does not think about the consequences, and it costs his daughter his life. So this really hit home to me. A lot of you know I used to work at a law firm, and the, the first case that, that I dealt with, I was being trained, and uh, we did a lot of bankruptcies. This woman comes in the very first case. This grandmother comes in in tears. And she explains her situations. She co-signed for three vehicles with three grandchildren. Brand new vehicles. Guess how many of them kept up the payments? If you guess one, you're shooting too high. All three of these grandchildren defaulted on their grandmother, who had to file, who is broken because she has to file bankruptcy because all these cars got repoed. And now 
her credit's ruined. And now she's going to spend the last years of her, and she didn't have much to begin with. She's going to spend the last years of her life trying to rebuild what little credit she had. Heartbreaking. Don't do it. If someone can't pay for it on their own, they probably shouldn't have it. It's just, it's a good principle. All right, let's move on. Chapter 23, verse 4 and 5. This is good. Uh, It's all good, but this one's especially good. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Notice the subtle difference here. Wealth is not the evil. Wealth in itself is amoral, like we said last week. It is without moral value. It is neither good nor evil. But don't make it the aim of your work. Do not toil to acquire wealth. It is not the goal of our toil. It is a result of hard work. If you work hard and the Lord blesses you and he gives you wealth, praise him for it. But that's not the goal. Because if you aim for wealth, verse 5, when your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Amen. How often have we aimed for something that we thought was going to please us like, like the, the, the kids on Christmas? Like if I can only have this one toy, my year is going to be great. And that lasts till about December 27th, if that. We're no different. We think that this new car, this new job, this new thing, if I can get this new promotion, everything is going to be right with the world. And it's like a bird that flies away and then we're on to the next thing. It's a tool. We use it as a tool, but it's not the end. There was a study done a few years ago where they asked people, how much is enough? What dollar amount would make you satisfied? And they had people in different uh, economic categories. The person who makes 40 grand a year, like how much is enough? What What would you need to be satisfied? Like, oh man, if I had 70 grand, if I could make 70 grand a year, I'd be set. I'd have no worries. I'd be good. The person who makes 70, they ask them, what would you need to feel confident, comfortable? Oh, if I had 100. Oh, man, 100, I, I would have no worries. Guess what the person who makes 100 says? Guess what the person who makes 200 says? Guess what the person who makes 500 says? The answer to how much is, is enough to be satisfied is always a little more. It is always a little more. And if that's your aim, it's going to be fleeting. You will never be able to catch it. Wealth is a tool and is a benefit of work, but is not the end in itself. This is why James says in chapter 4, don't put our stock in what we're going to make. James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. One, you can't tell the future. Two, don't stake your future on what you might make. Young people, I have heard this so many times. Don't say, hey, I've got this idea and I'm going to make X. That is called counting your chickens before they hatch and never do as many chickens hatch as you think are going to. Don't say you're going to do that. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Many of us say this, and we get in the habit of, Lord willing, I'll see you next week. Lord willing, if the church grows X, Y, Z. Lord willing, if I get this job. 
Because we're reminding ourselves that it is God's will, not our own, that dictates the future. We don't speak things into existence. But two, we trust in his will and his provision, not in our own. Amen. But how many people get caught up in what tomorrow, that next little bit, if I get this, if this happens, then I'll be content. If, God, if you do this, this, then I'll tithe. If you do this, then I'll serve. I've heard this so many times. You're making deals with God in the future. You are way beyond what you can do and what you can, you can follow through on. But going back to the beginning, going back to work ethic a couple of weeks ago, we work because our Father works, because it's a good thing. We work because we're, we're following his, his pattern of working and resting. Sin has, inf- the, sin has um, in, infused itself into everything. But we work to glorify God, to be good stewards, and to enjoy him. He's given us wealth. He's given us good things. If you're in this room, if you drove here and have more than one pair of shoes, you are wealthy. Praise God for that. Don't think that more shoes or more stuff is going to make you more happy. It's not. We all know that. Every one of us in this, in this room has thought the one more thing is going to make us happy, and it never does. We don't seek to build our kingdom. We seek to build his. And so that's why we can be open-handed with our, our, our finances. If he, if he makes us wealthy, praise him. If he doesn't, praise him. All right, let's move on. 28, verse 11. We're making better time than I thought I would. All right. 28, verse 11. A rich man is wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has understanding will find him out. Here's the uh, situation at hand. This is kind of describing, but also promising. Here's the rich person. This is like, I just picture as a kid, like, Scrooge McDuck with the, dollar, with the dollar signs in his eyes. Like, that's all he sees. He is so surrounded with his piles of money that he can't see around them for the little, for, for the, the little peons. That's the idea here. You can't see around all of your wealth. But often, poverty offers a greater perspective. Because you don't have as many distractions. You don't have as many temptations. You've got a lot less to worry about. You know, when we think about this, our, our wallet, our credit cards can't buy salvation. But if we put our faith in them, they can absolutely bring condemnation. And here's this, this rich man who is so blinded by his wealth that this poor guy who he looks down on who's got nothing has way more perspective than he does. And so that's why it is better to have little with righteousness than any other alternative. Because if you aim for wealth and it makes you blind to the things of God, what have you gained? All right, let's move on. Verse 28, verse 19. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. We dealt with this in work ethic, but I want you to see there's parallelism in these two verses. A faithful man will abound with blessings. But whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Here's where wealth and work ethic come together. Notice all the the parallels. These are two perfectly parallel verses. Um, Whoever works his land. Who's that? Verse 19 is the faithful man in verse 20. What will happen to the faithful man? He'll have plenty of bread. What's the parallel to that? 
he'll abound with many blessings. There's your parallels in your first line. Second line, but he who follows worthless pursuits. Who's that? The guy who hastens to be rich. What will happen to him? He'll have plenty of poverty. What does that mean? He will not go unpunished. Notice, what are you working for? What are you pursuing? If we work, God will provide all of our needs. He will. That is a promise. That is his surety. He will never let the righteous go hungry. But if we work for foolish pursuits, if we desire to get rich, there will be consequences. We will become a slave to our stuff. Jesus tells us you cannot serve God and money. That's why the faithful man works, he has what he needs, and he abounds. But the foolish man pursues wealth and ends up impoverished in his soul. So I like James here, James 1, 9 through 11. Be careful what you pursue. This is James 1, verse 9. He's got to scroll down. There's a lot of references on there. We're almost done, Trey. All right. James 1, 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. There we go. And the rich in his humiliation. What is, what is Jesus saying here? Or not, well, James, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes. Um, because <laughs> let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Meaning if you are low, Christ will exalt you. Don't worry about your status on earth. Your status in heaven is more, more important. And the rich, humble yourself because there are more trappings with your wealth than with poverty. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. If you pursue wealth, it is like the grass that springs up and spring dies in the fall. The flower that fades. Your boasting can only be in the Lord. Your exaltation is only by him. You can't exalt yourself. And if you are rich, be humble. Because if not, there is a fall coming soon after. All right, next. Chapter 28, verse 21. We all know partiality is not good. Uh, to show partiality is not good. But for a piece of bread, a man will do wrong. Oh, man, isn't this true? Well, I know what's right. But when there's something in it for us, you know, the idea here is if, if, if you're really hungry, you'll say or do anything for a piece of bread. But we think we're really hungry when we will compromise ourselves for something we want. Um, I have seen this in churches, and it is heartbreaking. When there's something in it for them, they have special meetings and special conversations and special tones for people who are big givers. Partiality is shown often. Sit here. Have the best seat. Let me take you out to dinner. Why don't you come and be a part of this, this, this process? Partiality, God hates again. Because we are showing ourselves to be unjust. We are judging people by exterior standards. We are placing a distinction between rich and poor. 
This is why God told Israel in Leviticus 19. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Let's be honest. Every one of us in this room has a problem with partiality. We either assume we're either the defenders of the poor or we're champions of the rich. Every, every one of us is going to wrestle with some of these, these passes. Well, the poor should just get a job. Sometimes that is true. Well, the rich are, are wicked. Sometimes that is true. But it is not always true. That's why we don't show partiality. This is why James says what he says in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Notice, the foundation for partiality is your faith in Christ. You are a new creature in him. You have been reconciled to him, united to him. You've been united to all of your brothers and sisters. Absolutely no partiality in the body of Christ. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is our faith worked out. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be the body of Christ? Are we bought with his blood and we serve him and then yet act according to one another in, in earthly mammon? Like do we judge as the world judge? We don't see superficial things, we see souls. Every person will go on beyond this life to the everlasting joy and favor of their master, as Jesus said in our parable earlier, or to destruction, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is the end-all, be-all. That is what we see. Are you in Christ, or do you need to know Christ? Not how are you dressing, or what can I get out of you? But we're all tempted to that. We all make our assessments on first sight. We all read books by their covers. And how often have we been wrong? Pretty much every time. And so I think James is dealing with a lot of issues in the church, and I'm thankful that doesn't happen here, but I have seen it happen far too many times than I would like. All right, last one, my favorite. This is my favorite proverb. Uh, proverb yes, proverb, a couple verses. Chapter 30, verses 8 and 9 particularly. But notice that, you know, at the end of all things, Agor here he says, two things I ask of you, petitioning the Lord. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Two major themes in Proverbs. We're going to spend two weeks on speech as well. Remove falsehood and lying, and here's our focus. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Man, I have been meditating on this for years because this is has always been a great temptation of mine. To make an idol out of material things, I know. And even if it's just for me, you guys are just sitting in on my counseling session. But I know my temptation when I get stuff, when is it that I don't trust the Lord? When I'm, when I, when I'm full. When I have everything 
I think I need. I start to put my, my trust in those things. When is it when I start getting desperate and start acting out of my character is when I'm a little short on money. Well, because I'm short, maybe I can cut a corner here. Maybe I can do this or that. That's why the writer here says, give me neither poverty nor riches because there's sin in both of them. There is temptation in both of them. You have too much pride. You have too little desperation. Either way, your focus becomes yourself. And what does he ask? Feed me with the food that is needful for me. What do I need, God? I need daily bread. Give me my necessities, and that's it. I know you will provide beyond that. How many problems would we save in our lives if we were content with necessity? How much aggravation and stress would we, would we save ourselves if we were content with, I have food in my belly, clothes on my back, and a roof over my head? We have so much more free time. This is why he asks, and he goes on to say, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? We've all been there. We think we're feeling good for a moment. Lord, I've got this. And then they're, they're, the pride and the stumbling kicks in. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Remember our conversation earlier. Name is everything. I can profane, I can make unholy in the eyes of other believers the name of my, or other people, the name of my God. I can profane you if I, when I sin and when I act out of character. Lord, I don't want to do that. I don't want to get too high on myself and I certainly don't want to profane your name. Keep me in a content middle. Paul found the secret. We're going to do it next week in Philippians. Here's our last cross-reference on the screen. Philippians 4. Paul found the secret to contentment. I love this section, and I love when it's put in its proper context and not taken out of context. Paul says here, this is uh, Philippians 4, second half, verse 11. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Brothers and sisters, what do we do with our money? In any situation, be content. That's it. If you can find contentment, you have found a rare jewel. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret. Facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Forget all the stupid bumper stickers and bracelets. This is not a self-serving verse. This is a self-denying verse. This is not a self-serving verse. This is a self-denying verse. This is not Steph Curry thinking he can hit every, every, every jump shot. That's 3,500 reps in the, in, in, the, in the gym. This is saying, even if I break my leg tomorrow, my wealth is, is gone, I will still praise him. This is, I, he can bring me high and, and, and I will give him the glory. He can bring me low and I will give him the glory. I can do all things because Christ is my strength. It's not in myself. It's not I can climb a mountain because I quoted this verse. It's even if I never make it out of the valley again, Christ is my strength. My contentment is in him. All right, so as we come to a close here, I want us to go to the end of the scriptures. Each of these sermons has been like a mini biblical theology. We're going to look at wealth all the way to the end. So 
turn, uh, it's not on the screen, so I need you in your Bibles. We're done in Proverbs. Go all the way to Revelation. Here's the end of all earthly wealth. When we see the love and pursuit of all things worldly, all things wealth, it's the nation of Babylon. It is a, it is a symbolism of everything that is wicked, everything that hates God. And notice what Babylon is marked by. If, you, if you've read Revelation, what is the nation of Babylon marked by? Two things, sexual immorality and wealth. We are living in spiritual Babylon. Any of this sound familiar? So I'm just going to pick up in Revelation 18, verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her. So here's the promise. One day, this world system that is, that is based on sexual immorality and wealth, it'll be destroyed. Look at this list of everything that goes on. Does this not sound like everything in worldly wealth? Pick up in verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold and silver and jewels and pearls and fine linen and purple cloth and silk and scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood and bronze and irons and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and myrrh and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep. And it goes on and on and on and on. And slaves, that is, human souls. This worldly conglomerate has captured everything material and brought many souls in it. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. If you long after these things, it will be taken away. And all of your delicacies and all your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. If you hold on to something that is passing away, it's going to be gone and gone forever. The merchants of those wares who gained wealth from her will stand afar off and fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Are you able to stand far off? Are you able to say, yeah, I like nice things, but not that much. I don't love them. I don't serve them. And if they're going to draw me into this nation that is perishing, I'm going I'm to step back. Alas, alas, verse 16. For the great city that is clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet adorned in gold with jewels and pearls, for a single hour all this wealth has been laid to waste. And all the shipmasters and seafarers and sailors and all those who trade in the sea stood far off and they cried, for they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they weeped and they mourned and they crying out because everything they have is gone. All of their hope is in their wealth. Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid to waste. But what's the response in heaven? Rejoice over her, O heaven. And you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. God is going to bring all that to nothing for the sake of his saints. We are seeing it right now. This month, more than any, all the wealth of the world is shaking its fist at God. All the wealth of the world has come together with all the sexual immorality of the world to celebrate their their pathway to hell. God will bring it to judgment. Don't you dare take part in it. You be the one standing far off. Let them go down with the ship. Don't jump on there with them. So, but all wealth is not bad. That's, that's one side of it. That's the wicked wealth. But remember, our God is rich. 
Psalm 50 tells us our God has the, the cattle on a thousand hills, meaning he owns everything. So what does that mean for us? He has given us wealth now as a small glimpse, as a small taste, to remind us you are going to be wealthy beyond comparison. All that other stuff passes. But what happens when our new home comes? We're given earthly wealth to get us to look forward to our new heaven and new earthly home. Look at chapter 21. Look at the language here. Our God is rich. They thought they had wealth. This is real wealth. Revelation 21, verse 9. The last vision of John here. Come out, the latter half of verse 9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So far, we've been talking about our first citizenship. This, if you are in Christ, this is your citizenship. The bride, we are citizens of that city, heavenly Jerusalem. What does this city look like? It came down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates at the 12 gates, 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel inscribed. Uh, I'm going to jump down to verse 18. Here's the walls and the gates. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second was sapphire, the third agate, the, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, and on and on and on. What's the idea here? Our God is rich. We have citizenship in a city that is rich. When, when saints read this, when persecuted believers in the city of Rome read this, and their wealth is being taken away, and their lives are being taken away, what is earthly wealth that's going to be taken away and burned up in the fire when this is where my home is? Jesus says, I am going away to prepare a room for you in my Father's mansion. The mansion is in this city. This is our citizenship. Going on, verse 22, there's more gold and more jewels before that. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does, not, does what is detestable or false, but the only, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Saints, we can be good citizens here because we're ultimately citizens there. That is our perspective. That is what Christ has sealed for us. The gospel gives us that assurance. I have given you my righteousness. I have covered you with my blood. You are mine forevermore. I go to the Father to prepare a place for you. That's how much I love you. I united you with myself. I made you my heir. You will inherit the world with me. This is what the gospel promises. Yes, we've got things here. But if we're obsessed with wealth here, thinking that that's all there is, got to hold on to it so tightly, guess what? That's all there is. And then when it's gone, then what? So all this being said, what do we love? What do our hearts love? Where do we find our security, our, our identity? Is our name wrapped up 
in the little placard on our desk or our pay stub? Or is our name important because we bear the name of Jesus Christ? Are you still standing on your own name and your own wealth, thinking that that will, that will satisfy you because it won't? But if our true treasure is heavenly riches, our reward is imperishable. We can be wise, we can be generous, we can be open-handed with earthly wealth. All right, all that being said, so pastor, what do we do with the money that we have now? It's monopoly money. It's, it's good while you're playing the game. Right now we're playing the game. When the game's over, it's nothing. Here's what, you, here's what you do with your money. You make it, you save it, you give it, you spend it to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Thank you for the wisdom of your word that examines our hearts. Convict us where needed. Encourage us where needed. Spur us on where needed. Lord, for the saints this morning, what a blessed assurance and reminder it is that we are in Christ, that we are rich in him, we are heirs with him. May our eyes be fixed on him and our hope be in our eternal citizenship. But until then, make us good stewards. Help us to have a proper view of wealth. Help us to be wise and discerning with what you've given us. And Lord, give us neither poverty nor riches. We would not want to forget you, and we would not want to profane you. Lord, we are so easily pulled toward one way or the other. Grant us contentment, because Christ is our strength. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.